The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Novel Strategies for Managing Patients with CKD-Associated Anemia, What Do Health System Pharmacists Need to Know About HIF-PH Inhibitors? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HFV860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to our session Novel Strategies for Managing Patients with CKD-Associated Anemia. What do health system pharmacists need to know about HIF-PH inhibitors? Today's panelists include myself, Jay Wish from Indiana University, Joanna Hudson from the University of Tennessee, and Ellie Koloporis from the University of Pennsylvania. So I'd like to turn the podium over to my colleague, Ellie Koloporis, who's going to discuss the benefits, limitations, and mechanisms of action in current emerging strategies for monitoring and and monitoring CKD-associated anemia. Ellie? Thank you. Um, Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming here today. Um, So um, when we discuss CKD-associated anemia, really we have to recognize the problem, which is really increasingly being recognized as a, a heavy burden, very high incidence. Uh, First of all, CKD treatment is suboptimal in the United States, actually in the world. Um, 15% of U.S. adults, some new data, have chronic kidney disease, and the definition of CKD is evolving, and I would like to share that with you later. Um, Only 36% of patients with CKD receive an ACE or an ARB, a RAS blocker, which is really the standard of care for management of proteinuria and hypertension in chronic kidney disease. So the question is, why? Why is it so low? And greater than 550,000 Americans are on dialysis in the United States, uh, but there are, you can see, millions with CKD stages 1 to 4 non-dialysis. Why are only 500,000 patients uh, on dialysis? It's because there's an increasing mortality, increasing death in our patients, and anemia is one of the contributors to that mortality and those uh, bad outcomes. So um, I alluded to that CKD staging is really becoming more nuanced. And here it's defined by declining GFR and albuminuria. So albuminuria is a very important key determinant of staging of GFR. And um, when there is albumin in the urine, it indicates there's increasing damage to kidney function. But also, I'd like to share with you that albumin in the urine is a surrogate marker for cardiovascular disease and endothelial dysfunction, those are the comorbidities our patients with CKD are dying from. So we are tracking UACR very carefully early on in the course of chronic kidney disease, whether a patient is diabetic or not. And this is what we call the KDGO. It's a practice guideline uh, for nephrologists, the KDGO heat map. Red is bad, green is go. And what you can see here, the stages of, of GFR go from G1 to G5. Again, defined as kidney failure, G5 less than 15 mLs per minute, people on dialysis. And you see that even 
even if you have a near normal glomerular filtration rate, which is you know, 90 to 104 or 75 to 89 the green, if you have very high protein in the urine, then you really are risk stratified at a very high risk level and need to be treated um, um, just with that for albuminuria. So it's not just the level of GFR drop, but the presence of albuminuria that really risk stratifies our patients. So um, we know we've, we've increasingly been recognized that being re- we have increasingly recognized, excuse me, that racial and ethnic disparities exist in chronic kidney disease and in the treatment of those patients with chronic kidney disease. So the highest risk populations, we call the vulnerable populations or minorities, um, are, are, the, are the majority, they, those are the higher risk. And yet they have less medical care or less access to medical care. Uh, The rates of kidney failure from diabetes by race and ethnicity in 2013 and actually more current data show that the burden of disease really is placed on minority populations, predominantly black and Hispanic patients. And the presence of clinical risk factors for CKD and and patients screened for CKD among black participants, um, only 24% of those patients are screened for chronic kidney disease. So I guess it's on us as healthcare providers to recognize that as a real problem and and really work towards um, you know correcting it. You also see that the proportion of patients that did not receive care from a nephrologist prior to hemodialysis also varies by ethnicity, with the majority of patients being Hispanic and also African American. Um, So that patients are dying of chronic kidney disease, they may not be aware that they have it, and yet, as a a healthcare community, really, we are not really acting quickly enough to really remedy that situation. So CKD-associated anemia is really a significant then public health challenge. I, I say to you that patients die of cardiovascular disease, increasing morbidity, and the anemia prevalence increases as you lose kidney function. So up to 87% of patients on dialysis have anemia, actionable anemia, which we define as less than 10 grams. Uh, Anemia accelerates the progression of chronic kidney disease and also increases the already high costs associated with CKD care. Um, Anemia in chronic kidney disease also reduces quality of life in our patients, increases cardiovascular comorbidities we talked about, hospitalization and mortality. And I, I will just tell you that in my own experience and really in published data, universally patients with chronic kidney disease care more about how they feel than longevity. So their lifespan is shortened. It's not as short as it used to be, but the quality of life indicators and anemia with fatigue, shortness of breath, feeling lousy every day, they would rather feel better than live for 20 years with those symptoms. And Dr. Hudson will further um, develop that concept in her talk. So the prevalence of CKD-associated anemia in an anemic cohort, non-anemic cohort, for the minority populations, as I discussed, 70% um, of the anemic cohort are um, uh, you know, under our um, vulnerable population. 
whereas um, um, 78% of the non-aminic cohort are as well. So it, it seems that um, the vulnerable populations in our specialty really are the Hispanic and, Afri- and uh, African Americans or black Americans, uh, as well as Native Americans that are, are in that group as well. So what you see here is that um, this, which is an important um, determinant of um, risk, is socioeconomic status. So we're increasingly recognizing that low income and less than high school education literacy level, really um, there's a higher incidence of anemia um, in both those domains. And you would ask why? Why is education important? Well, every patient needs to be educated in a different way in the language they understand that anemia is, a, is something that can and should be um, corrected. So these social determinants of health really are increasingly playing really an important role in CKD-associated anemia. And all many of these factors lead to anemia and, and to progressive CKD. And, and, you know, we were born with the genes that we have, but we can modify some of those genes by therapeutic interventions or modify the outcome or the phenotype of those genes with, um, with um, true medication, education, and also the environment that those patients live in really alters um, the way that they are treated and, the, and their access to care is really important. So we really have to look, about, uh, look at these uh, social determinants of health very carefully in our vulnerable populations so that we can address them. I, I want to point out one thing that is really, really became stunning to me when I reviewed some of these data, and that is the low, low birth weight. Uh, which is at the bottom of that slide. So the numbers of glomeruli, the filtering units that your kidney has that filter blood, are determined from the day you're born. And um, when you have low birth rates, you have low numbers of those glomeruli. And then low numbers of glomeruli with low birth rate lead to progressive kidney disease and some glomerular diseases like focal sclerosis, which is a disease that has a lot of proteinuria. So um, if you look at our vulnerable populations, many African-American patients really do have low, low birth weights. So I would, I would, we have, we, we're not pediatricians, we're adult nephrologists and adult practitioners here, but one of the questions that pediatricians always ask is what is, what was your birth weight? So you guys need to memorize that. Um, so etiology of CKD-associated anemia is multifactorial. So why, why patients with chronic kidney disease getting anemia? Uh, so this is a busy slide, but the pathophysiology of this involves several processes. First of all, the kidney is an organ that is very inflamed, so it's high inflammation in the center, but also has disrupted renal oxygen sensing. And I'll, I'll, I'll further go through that in a couple more slides, and Dr. Wish will you know, discuss that in detail. But the kidney lives in, in um, a renal, the renal oxygen sensing in the kidney is disrupted. You need oxygen for life, right, for breathing, but you also need oxygen for other gene trans- transcription, uh, which includes uh, some of what we're going to talk about today, which is the production of erythropoietin and, and how this HIF pathway that we're going to define really is affected by chronic kidney disease and, and um, in that sense 
It leads to reduced erythropoietin production. Without erythropoietin, you can stimulate the bone marrow to make cells. Again, CKD is a a model of inflammation with high inflammatory markers. Um, And the inflammation not only leads to reduction of EPO production, but also uh, decreased red cell lifespan. Um, but importantly in this, uh, in this slide is really the appearance of uh, and the uh, notoriety of this molecule hepcidin. So hepcidin um, was discovered and really increased our knowledge base of iron metabolism and it, it, because it is really the master regulator of iron metabolism in our body. It's the gatekeeper to iron mobilization from storage sites, such as the liver, the hepatocytes, and also absorption from the GI tract. So um, what happens in CKD simply is that as you lose kidney function, less of this hepcidin is cleared, more accumulates in blood, very high levels, and blocks um, iron from being released from the storage, from the storage places. And so all this um, really conspires to lower plasma iron, decrease erythropoiesis. There's also blood loss, particularly in our dialysis patients on dialysis, when they lose blood through various reasons um, while they're being dialyzed, interrupted circuits, or blood within a dialyzer. And all of those conspire to lead to anemia. So there's a difference. Um, uh, so in, in not only is erythropoiesis important, right, the, the presence of the hormone erythropoietin to stimulate bone, bone marrow production of mature red cells, uh, but iron is a, a co-player in this, um, in this domain. And what you see here is that absolute iron deficiency, so our patients are iron deficient uh, on dialysis, um, absolute iron deficiency is, is defined as no stainable iron in storage tissues. Now, if we were purists, we would do bone marrow biopsies on all patients to see whether there's iron staining in their bone marrow, but it's a very invasive test, so we don't really do that. We have other surrogate markers. And, and so in absolute iron deficiency on the lower panel, the serum ferritin and the indices of iron um, stores, the serum iron and the transferrin saturation, are low, and the hemoglobin is low. Um, but in functional iron deficiency, which is what most of our dialysis patients and, and our non our advanced kidney failure patients have is functional iron deficiency, where you see that the serum ferritin is high, but the iron and the transferrin saturation and availability of iron are low, and the hemoglobin is also low. And, and functional, functional iron deficiency really is a direct result of increased hepcidin in patients with chronic kidney disease because we can't mobilize the iron that's in the storage that's reflected by the serum ferritin. Now, I must say that serum ferritin is, is not only a storage um, term for iron storage, but it actually is with, uh, it's actually also an inflammatory marker. And if you were to co-measure ferritin with CRP, uh, they would co-migrate. So ferritin is both a storage sort of indicator, but also an inflammatory marker. And both are high in patients with kidney disease. So um, I alluded to the fact that there's an oxygen-sensing dysregulation, sort of a maladaptive response in the kidney, 
and, and the chronic kidney disease impairs the kidney's ability to elicit an erythropoietic response to hypoxia. So when you're hypoxic, right, you want to get more oxygen. Um, because that's what that, that's the definition of hypoxia. Well, the kidney, in normal situations, the kidney um, tissue oxygen or plasma oxygen level of supply equals demand. One doesn't exceed the other. Um, in kidney disease, what you see here is that although you have a kidney that has, you know, a diseased parenchyma, um, that the, the kidneys, you know, um, filter our blood and, and hold on to electrolytes, filter blood and create urine, but hold on to electrolytes. And one of the most important electrolytes is sodium. So in order for our kidneys to hold on to sodium, there's a lot of energy being um, um, dispensed in the kidney, in the proximal tubule, as well as the loop of Henle and other parts of the kidney. When, when you have, um, when, when you have um, so um, really energy is, uh, is consumed, and uh, when you have kidneys that are not working very well with low GFR, then their filtration really decreases. So they don't filter as much blood, right? And so therefore, the sodium reabsorption that I talked about, the electrolytes that would be really um, increased uh, normally, um, decrease. So there's a decrease in sodium reabsorption, and therefore there's no energy being consumed. And it appears like um, if there were energy consumed, the oxygen levels would fall. But because energy is not being conserved for the transport of uh, this molecule through, through the sodium-potassium pump and channels, etc., um, what you see is that the oxygen level in the peritubular cells remains high. And so the kidney, although it's damaged, the oxygen level is high, and those cells, that's where erythropoietin is generated. That's one of the questions, right? It's generated by the uh, renal epithelial cells called parasites that surround the proximal tubule and other tubules that sense that dysregulation of oxygen. And really, that's the key based on uh, which the, the PHIs or the HIV protein, the HIV um, um, pathway has, has really been developed. And Dr. Wish will talk to you more about that. So, um, so there is disrupted oxygen sensing in the kidneys because oxygen level is high. And the kidneys are fo they're fooling the system and saying, well, you know, we don't really need to make more, more erythropoietin because the level is high. Um, and it's pseudonormoxic. That's a new term for me, too. So it's a, a pseudonormoxic state. So it's a, power, it's a, a sort of maladaption. And there are also a reduced number of these rep cells that I talked to you about, the renal epithelial parasites in the kidney available to sort of elicit this hypoxic response. So um, we'll talk a little bit more about hepcidin because it's a very important molecule and it's redefined how we think about iron metabolism and iron mobilization. So um, hepcidin regulates iron metabolism and as I said to you, it's often, excuse me, elevated in patients with kidney disease because there's reduced clearance of hepcidin, there's inflammation with inflammatory markers like, like IL-6 being produced, uh, there's increased iron stores in the liver, and, and um, so since hepcidin blocks this release of iron from the storage cells and absorption from the uh, duodenum, what happens is that you continue to 
um, keep iron in the stores, but not available for it, and it won't be mobilized, so you have this functional iron deficiency state that we talked about. And it's really, really important to recognize that hepcidin goes up, starts rising early on in kidney disease, but reaches levels at the point where people patients are on dialysis with very low GFR, so very high hepcidin levels. And, you know, one of the questions you might ask, is this hepcidin measurable? Can we treat it? You know, can we inhibit it? And not in cl- I can say no, not in clinical practice. Uh, we haven't really um, come that far, but it does, it can be manipulated in mass, in animal studies, um, and with inhibition, inhibitory co- uh, compounds. So evaluation of anemia and basic management of chronic kidney disease. Um, really, you see these stage three, four, five, and stage five D on dialysis. I think it's reasonable the, the high, to, um, to monitor levels of anemia in iron studies in patients with CKD stage four, f- five and five on dialysis. I show here an algorithm just to to, uh, focus on what we think about when we take care of patients. When you have these um, chronic kidney disease, check the hemoglobin. Uh, We define, you see the definition. And then, you know, you have to measure iron stores and treat with iron if patients are iron deficient. Um, And then uh, if anemia is not corrected with iron, then you would add an erythropoietic agent like ESA or erythropoietin to raise the hemoglobin to at least above 10 grams per deciliter. So the benefits and limitations of current treatments for anemia and chronic kidney disease are are listed on this slide. First of all, um, iron therapy is key. Oral or IV iron, you can give oral iron, but you require a lot of iron to oral iron, another to repeat your iron stores. So intravenous iron is uh, recommended usually for uh, severe anemia, severe iron deficiency anemia, particularly in dialysis patients after they failed um, a, a trial of oral iron. Um, and the limitations are that oral iron may be ineffective or poorly tolerated. There could be um, allergic reactions um, that cause hypotension. ESA therapy is is actually um, a barrier uh, sometimes because sub-Q injection and intravenous administration are the only forms, whether these other agents that we're going to talk to you about are oral. Um, And um, they're not always effective. You can treat patients, but there's not always effective erythropoiesis, and they're hypo-responders. So this is an unmet clinical need in our patients. And then finally, transfusions, which, uh, you know, it's used to be the gold standard before even erythropoietin was uh, made available uh, in recombinant form. And, you know, when you transfuse patients with chronic kidney disease, they're, they're allosensitized to foreign antigens, and kidney transplantation is limited for those patients. So uh, where are the gaps in the treatment of CKD-associated anemia? Obviously, the most anemic patients are in CKD stage 4 and 5, and also the patients on dialysis. So those are the patients, as I said, with actionable anemia, hemoglobin less than 10. And, and so this is something that those are the patients that we screen and follow carefully, usually every three to six months and annually if you have um, uh, G, uh, stage 3. Uh, transfusions are the predominant treatment in non-dialysis CKD, and these, as I said, p- uh, potentially interfere with future transplant eligibility. Insurance doesn't change that. 
So how can we now harness this hypoxia to treat anemia and chronic kidney disease? And that's really why you're here today, to hear about these new innovative agents. Um, the body naturally makes more red cells in oxygen-deprived atmosphere in high altitudes. We know that patients um, in high altitudes um, have uh, a lower prevalence of anemia. And um, also, um, what's really important and exciting is that 2019, Peter Radcliffe, a, a nephrologist in the United Kingdom, won the Nobel Prize for understanding how these hypoxia-inducible factors, the HIFs, regulate oxygen levels at high altitude, and how can we leverage that to treat our patients with, with um, um, dialysis, so with, with kidney disease. So with that, I'd like to turn this over to Dr. Wish, Jay Wish, who's going to talk to you really about the future of these agents. Thank you. Thank you, Ellie, for providing a beautiful introduction in terms of uh, some of the unmet needs for current anemia treatment. You know, we try very, very hard, uh, but not all patients do respond to our therapies despite our, our best efforts. And as Ellie mentioned, our understanding about the pathophysiology of anemia and chronic kidney disease has advanced tremendously over the last 20 or so years. Uh, we used to think naively that anemia and chronic kidney disease was merely an EPO-deficient state, that diseased kidneys just made less EPO, and if we give them back EPO, just like you give a type 1 diabetic insulin, that would solve the problem. And we've learned that there, obviously, there are many other nuances that go into the pathophysiology, hepcidin, and now HIF, uh, that we can ultimately leverage in terms of making patients less anemic and perhaps improving the quality of life. So just to kind of go into more detail in terms of the physiologic role of, of HIF and prolohydroxylase, which is the enzyme that degrades the alpha subunit of HIF in the presence of oxygen. And you can see what happens in this slide. In the presence of oxygen, these HIF prolohydroxylase enzymes are activated and they basically do what the name suggests. They hydroxylate the proline residues on this protein, HIF-alpha, and this changes its three-dimensional configuration so that it becomes recognized and targeted by, for destruction by several enzyme systems, including ubiquitin and von Hippel-Landau factor. In the presence of low oxygen, such as might be encountered in high altitude, uh, these HIF-prolohydroxylase enzymes do not become activated because they require the oxygen for activation. And the HIF-alpha subunit survives and migrates to the nucleus of the cell where it heterodimerizes with the HIF-beta subunit, which is always present. And this leads to transcription of a variety of genes. And again, since these proteins, hypoxia-inducible factors, are designed, they evolve to basically adapt the cell and the tissue to a hypoxic state, there are a variety of consequences that help with that adaption, most notably increased erythropoiesis. Because if less oxygen is coming to the tissue, you can basically do a couple of things to improve oxygen delivery. One is to increase the carriers of that oxygen, namely the red cells, and the other would be to increase the number of vessels by which those red cells travel, and that would be angiogenesis. 
But if we focus on the red cells, there is more of a coordinated response with leveraging the HIF system than what we get by just giving erythropoietin. Erythropoietin, yes, increases red cell production, but it does nothing for the iron mobilization problems that Ellie alluded to, but either functional or absolute iron deficiency that often coexist with the anemia in our patients with chronic kidney disease. So the enzymes, or I should say the genes that are transcribed not only include the erythropoietin gene, but a variety of genes that augment iron absorption from the gastrointestinal tract and augment the release of iron from stores. So what you often will see is a decrease in ferritin levels reflecting the decrease in storage iron and an increase in transferrin saturation reflecting increased mobilization of circulating iron and ultimately improved iron delivery to the erythropoietin. Marrow. There's also an indirect function of HIF PHIs to decrease hepcidin levels, which also improves duodenal iron absorption as well as the release of iron from storage sites. So if we contrast the mechanism of action of ESAs versus that of HIF-PHIs, again, ESAs are kind of a one-trick pony. Yes, they improve the differentiation of the stem cells in the bone marrow to erythroid precursors, but they basically do nothing in terms of iron mobilization. And as Ellie emphasized, this is a key issue in terms of the anemia pathogenesis and chronic kidney disease. Patients who take HIF inhibitors not only have the direct stimulation of erythropoietin production and its downstream effects, but also the improved iron mobilization because you need to deliver iron to the bone marrow as a substrate for red cell production. Now, there are a number of HIF-PHIs that are in development worldwide. Three of them had undergone development in the United States, and they are shown in this slide, Ruxudostat, Vatidostat, and Deprotostat. Ruxudostat was rejected by the FDA in August 2021 because of safety concerns, but I should point out it was a approved in the European Union uh, later that month even, and has previously been approved in China, Japan, Chile, South Korea, and the United Kingdom. The second one, Vadudistat, was also rejected by the FDA, this in March of 2022, also because of safety concerns. It is currently undergoing review by the European Medicines Association, which is the FDA equivalent in the European Union, and it has been approved in Japan. The most recent candidate is Daprotostat, which has not yet had a final approval decision by the FDA and is due before February of 2023. However, there was an advisory committee, CRDAC, Cardiorenal Advisory Drug Advisory Committee, that convened in October of 2022 and recommended the approval of Daprotostat for dialysis patients, but recommended against the approval of Daprotostat in non-dialysis patients, again because of safety concerns, and Daprotostat has been approved in Japan. Now, these are different, different drugs. They're not all the same, and we cannot necessarily infer that there's a class effect with regards to safety. And indeed, the safety concerns with these three drugs have been different based on the phase three clinical trials. Ruxudasat, as you can see, has the longest half-life and is actually administered three times weekly, which makes it well-suited for in-center dialysis patients. Vatidustat has a shorter half-life and is administered daily. There was a phase two study that shows that it's effective three times weekly in dialysis patients, but this was not done in the phase three trials. And then Daprotostat has an intermediate half-life and 
has actually been shown to be effective in phase three trials, both when administered daily in non-dialysis patients and in dialysis patients, and also three times weekly in dialysis patients. And you can see at the bottom of the slide, there are three probal hydroxylase domain enzymes that have been identified. And there's a little difference between the specificity of these three drugs with regards to these probal hydroxylase domain enzymes. You can see Roxudostat inhibits them all equally. Vatidostat inhibits PhD3 more than one and two, and the same with Daprotostat. Whether that has any clinical relevance remains to be seen. So there are clearly some gaps in our current uh, uh, treatment of anemia that Ellie very eloquently um, described. And as you can see in this particular figure, individual preference of the patients are key to those gaps. Most of our non-dialysis CKD patients would prefer an orally administered drug like a HIF-PHI because they are oral as opposed to self-injecting a parenteral drug like an ESA or even more inconveniently having to go to an infusion center every week or every couple weeks to receive an ESA injection. There's also LDL reduction, at least with Ruxudostat and possibly with Daprotostat. Again, the accessibility of an oral agent is greater uh, than with a parenterally administered treatment. And ultimately, the bottom line for the FDA is the safety of these drugs. Most of them were compared to ESA in the phase three clinical trials. And we know that ESAs have their own baggage with regards to cardiovascular safety, especially when used to drive to a target hemoglobin greater than 13. And the FDA takes the safety issues with ESAs very seriously and basically feels that any drug that's not at least as safe as an ESA really needs to be approached with caution. And that perhaps explains their reluctance to approve these drugs in the United States states so far. So how do HIF-PHIs compare with the, start, the current standard of care, which is ESAs and iron therapy? Almost all of the phase three clinical trials show that the HIF-PHIs, again, all three of that I described that are undergoing uh, regulatory approval in the United States, are equally effective to ESAs. There's no question about their efficacy, and there's really very little question about their dosing. These have gone phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, and the dose needed to achieve the target hemoglobin of 10 to 11, which is the approved target hemoglobin for ESAs in the United States, has been pretty well worked out. Mortality is equal in all of these trials. Most of the safety issues are not related to deaths, they're related to other complications, which again, vary from drug to drug. Obviously, there's healthcare utilization issues and clearly an oral drug probably requires less infrastructure as compared to a parenterally administered drug. And again, the safety and quality of life benefits. The quality of life benefits are probably related to the hemoglobin achieved and not to any inherent feature of whether it's the HIF-PHI or an ESA. And again, if a patient can access an orally administered drug and achieve the desired hemoglobin of 10 to 11, as opposed to no treatment at all because of issues with regards to accessibility of ESAs, which disproportionately affect socially disadvantaged populations, then clearly you're going to have a better QOL result with an orally administered drug. So what do we know about the clinical trials for these three agents in the United States? And I'm not going to 
try to dwell too much because there's a lot of data here. But as you can see, Roxutistat, Vatisut, and Dapridustat have had a number of trials in dialysis-dependent CKD. And you can see, in order to look at cardiovascular outcomes, all of these trials were a year or more in duration. And for the dialysis trials, the comparator was always an ESA. This shows you the efficacy of the mean change in hemoglobin from baseline. And again, you see all of the drugs. The top two are Roxudostat, the middle two are Vatidostat, and the bottom one is Daprotostat. And the increase in hemoglobin was pretty much indistinguishable from that of the ESA comparator. If we look at non-inferiority margins for major adverse cardiovascular events, or MACE, you can see that Roxudostat achieved a non-inferiority margin for MACE of 1.3. Unfortunately, the FDA felt that 1.25 was a more suitable margin because that was the one that they had also agreed on with the other HIF-PHIs, and they felt that this failed in terms of the safety analysis. Vatidustat did meet the safety analysis at 1.25 you can, in for the U.S. patients, but not outside the U.S., and you can see Daprotistat met the safety margin by a, a large uh, value uh, in terms of having about a 1.1 as opposed to the 1.25 pre-specified margin. As you can see here, Roxudistat was effective in raising hemoglobin in patients who were dialysis dependent. And again, if you look at the MACE outcomes in terms of cardiovascular endpoints for Roxudistat, you can see for MACE, it uh, if you look at the time to the event using the Cox model, uh, it, it did in fact uh, achieve non-inferiority. And if you look at the Kaplan-Meier plot, it did seem to also be comparable to the Epoetin Alpha. The Innovate trial with Vadudistat in terms of efficacy it was pretty much comparable to the Darby-Poetin comparator. Again, if you look at safety in dialysis patients, uh, it achieved uh, staying under that non-inferiority upper bound of 1.25, whether you looked at MACE, cardiovascular base, cardiovascular mortality, or all-cause mortality. The ASCEND trial for Daprotostat, again, efficacy was comparable to that of the uh, uh, ESA. And if you look at safety for MACE, MACE or thromboembolic events, MACE or hospitalization for heart failure or death from any cause, you can see the Kaplan-Meier plots are virtually superimposable. There were some adverse events of special interest uh, in the Daprotostat study, which you can see here, and really most of them crossed the relative risk uh, identity of 1.0, so there really weren't any red flags in terms of these uh, uh, issues. I mentioned a little bit the effect of these drugs on hepcidin. They indirectly downregulate hepcidin and thereby improve iron absorption and iron release from reticulum endothelial tissues. And as you can see, if you compare Daprotostat uh, to the uh, Darby-Poetin alpha in patients with inflammation, you can see that, Darby, that Daprotostat had a greater increase in serum iron and in transferrin saturation, a slightly greater reduction in ferritin, and a significantly greater reduction in hepcidin, again, consistent in what we feel is the mechanism of action of these drugs. For patients not on dialysis, there have been a number of phase three trials that have completed, again, greater than one year in duration to assess cardiovascular endpoints. Uh, here you can see that the non-inferiority the non margin for MACE uh, that was pre-specified was 1.3 for uh, Roxudostat and 1.25 for the other agents. This is the efficacy 
Roxudis that was the only agent in non-dialysis patients that compared its efficacy to placebo. And as you can see on the left-hand side of the slide, it far exceeded placebo in terms of the hemoglobin rise, which averaged about two grams per DL as opposed to insignificant for placebo. And on the right-hand side of the slide, you can see the comparator being an ESA. And again, whether you're looking at Roxudistat, Datadustat, or Daprotostat, it was pretty comparable to the ESA. Batidustat basically did not achieve FDA approval uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mostly because of the cardiovascular mortality exceeding the upper bound for the non-dialysis patients, and then there were also issues of drug-induced liver injury in both dialysis and dialysis patients. Daprotostat safety in non-dialysis patients appeared in the intention-to-treat analysis to be identical to that of the ESA comparator, but in the on-treatment analysis, which you can see on the right hand of the slide, surrounded by the red square, there was an excess number of MACE events uh, during treatment. Uh, this is subject to some controversy because the comparator was darbipoetin, which is administered every three to four weeks in non-dialysis patients, but they only use at one day following the last dose of either drug. And the sponsor really maintained that the daprotostat-treated patient should have had the one-day window in terms of on treatment, but the darbipoetin patient should have had the three- or four-week window on treatment, and that would have significantly reduced uh, the MACE window. So the benefits of HIF-PHIs and non-dialysis CKD are summarized in this slide, and the current body of evidence says that they're really potentially as safe as ESA. They're clearly more accessible because they're orally administered. The patients can take them at home, and ultimately the clinical potential of this novel class uh, needs to be investigated to look more in more depth at some of these safety signals to see whether or not it's an acceptable trade-off for the increased accessibility of these drugs. Okay, so now I'd like to turn the podium over to our final speaker, Joanna Hudson, uh, which will talk about some of the pharmacist strategies to improve anemia management in CKD patients. Joanna? Thank you, Jay, and thank you for summarizing some very complex data in a very concise way, a lot of good information there. So um, you've heard a couple of talks related to chronic kidney disease and anemia. So Dr. Kellaporis and Dr. Wish have done a great job of talking about the epidemic of CKD and anemia as a secondary complication that we deal with very frequently in patients with chronic kidney disease. We've also heard about HIF-PHIs and the risk versus benefit of these agents, and we'll, we'll see what happens with regard to, to approval in this country, and that's exciting to know. I'm taking a turn, and instead of talking about some of those same issues that I usually do when, when I do some of these presentations, I'm going to talk about really the pharmacist role and why you, as pharmacists, are important in terms of managing patients with chronic kidney disease. So if we look at kind of what's going on in the nephrology world, there's been a lot of changes in the last five to 10 years with regard to emphasis on chronic kidney disease, okay? Why is that? Well, patients die of kidney disease, okay? As, as you saw in the first presentation, the heat map, we know that mortality is very prevalent in these patients. 
And so we know that there's a push in Healthy People 2030 and other initiatives to lower the death in these patients, not only in dialysis patients, but in patients with chronic kidney disease in general. And in 2019, in addition to the Nobel Prize being given to a nephrologist, the Kidney Health um, Initiative and the American, Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative was an executive order that was signed and initiated. And many of you may not be aware of that, but there were some very bold goals that this initiative had. And those goals related to, in a very quick fashion, the majority of individuals with kidney failure um, would receive a transplant or home dialysis as opposed to in-center dialysis, which is associated with more cost and, and maybe some more complications. So that was one of the goals. The other one was to decrease, certainly, the development of kidney failure, right? So a 25% decrease, to be specific, in terms of reduction in the rate of kidney failure. So those were very broad goals, very big goals, very ambitious. It's been criticized to some degree, but you get the point, right? There is a push to lower the incidence of kidney disease and kidney failure and get more patients on home, transpl- or home dialysis or transplant. So from this has come a lot of different kidney care models. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about those. I'll come back to that concept soon as it relates to to pharmacist involvement here. But that's something to be aware of. How does anemia fit in here? Well, as you've heard, anemia is associated with increased mortality in both dialysis-dependent as well as non-dialysis-dependent CKD patients. So certainly there's reason to address that from a mortality perspective. If you look here on the right, lower side, you can see the statement that anemia is associated with more rapid CKD progression. Okay, so again, reasons that we want to address this complication. And if we think about what could happen if more patients are doing home dialysis, we know that the therapies that we have for anemia become important in in the sense of of access to those therapies. In other words, if patients are doing dialysis at home, they may not have IV access to be able to get an IV ESA, or they may not want to to administer sub-Q as well. So the therapies and the routes of administration, as you've heard about with this new drug class potentially coming down the road, would be an important consideration as well. So this is really the perspective from the cost and and outcomes. What about from the patient's perspective? If we look at a survey of of patients with chronic kidney disease related to uh, their perceptions of anemia, we can see that these individuals uh, attribute many adverse effects to anemia, and you can see those listed here, not surprising uh, with the symptoms that you see there related to anemia. But unfortunately, many struggled to recall key information about anemia or didn't know and couldn't recall their hemoglobin levels. So they didn't really know their numbers, as we like to say, and think about that. And in addition to this, you could also think about if if we told them their numbers in terms of, of creatinine and other things for those who had progressive kidney disease, that would probably be the same answer. They don't always know know the information. Many also did not correctly identify symptoms of anemia. They didn't know that the, the symptoms that they were having were related to anemia. They also said they felt more confident if their provider was giving them information about this disease state. And if they didn't get that information, they were more likely to look for information online or via social media. Okay, so you can see a lot of disconnects with regard to the patients being empowered to really take charge, in this case of anemia, but we could put this up here for, for chronic kidney disease in general, okay, and knowing what's going on with, with progression for patients in earlier stages of CKD. So this really begs the issue of of shared decision-making, right? It's important for patients and individuals to be involved in their care, right? There's there's lots of different things listed here in terms of benefits, improving compliance and satisfaction, hopefully fewer acute illnesses and hospitalizations, but also having a better relationship with their providers, being empowered to manage the disease, hopefully having a better quality of life, 
Um, and essentially, a lot of this could relate to decreased cost of care. So a lot of potential advantages here in terms of the patients being involved. Now, how do you get the patients involved, though? This is where I think all of us come into play. You have to have a team that's working with the patient. This shows you really the, the team players that would be involved, right, for somebody with chronic kidney disease. We certainly know the nephrologist involved, is involved in nurses. I would make the, the argument that clinical pharmacists as well as pharmacists in the community, and that doesn't mean that pharmacists in the community aren't clinical, just means often in the community they don't have access to labs and other pieces of information that they need to make some more clinical decisions. But both groups should be involved in, in the patient's care. On the bottom here, you see the dietitian and social worker as well as the transplant and dialysis team being involved. Those are absolutely key players as well. And I would argue that this should be a, a team that's in place throughout the continuum of CKD, right? Not just at the end stage kidney disease uh, level. But if you think about how this kind of works, um, if, if any of you know anything about the structure of outpatient dialysis units, as you're driving down the streets and, and see the DeVitas and Fresenius's of the world, dialysis units cannot operate without having nephrologists, um, and nurses, but they're also mandated to have dietitians and social workers. You may not be aware of that, but the, the unit cannot operate without those key providers. What about pharmacists? Well, the federal government looked at this several years ago in terms of should pharmacists be part of that healthcare team? And they said, absolutely. There's all these medication-related problems, lots of things going on, but they didn't mandate it, right? So that's you know, a, a disconnect there in terms of, um, of that structure. Now, you know, that comes down to a cost perspective, but the, the message there is that pharmacists were considered important enough to be part of that team, but they weren't mandated. So not all dialysis units, by any means, have pharmacists involved. And the flip side of that is dietitians and social workers aren't necessarily part of the early stages of CKD care as maybe they should be, right? So we really need this team to be involved earlier and to, to include these core individuals. So why do I make the argument for pharmacists to be involved? Well, if I go back to that value-based care model I referred to with that Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative, right? There's all these different care models. That's a whole talk in and of itself. But pharmacists really can enhance the, the value-based practice. They may allow nephrologists to care for more patients because there's certainly an increased demand in patients than, than often there are nephrologists to see those patients. They may also be able to help them meet the metrics in terms of those key model measures and medication-related metrics and ideally enhance optimization of evidence-based medications for reduction of CKD progression and cardiovascular disease. These patients die of cardiovascular events in terms of the red that was on that heat map. That's the leading cause of mortality. So all those different ther all those therapies that you're now hearing more and more about, right, SGLT2s, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, we need to make sure patients are on the right therapies to prevent them from developing kidney failure. And also addressing barriers to getting access to medications. You've heard that alluded to in terms of um, those, those barriers and problems with that. So that's another potential improvement that with pharmacists. Improving medication adherence is on this list as well. And also addressing specific medication therapy problems. Okay, there's a lot of different things we could put on that list of medication therapy problems that lead to adverse events and healthcare utilization. But I would want to make the statement to you that we can do this only by providing really comprehensive medication management. And hopefully this group is, is familiar with that term. That was one of your, your questions in the beginning. But if you look at comprehensive medication management, and you can read this definition, but it really is making sure that uh, it's a standard of care that ensures that all the patient's medications are individually assessed to make sure they're appropriate, effective, safe, and they're able to be taken by the patient as intended. 
right? So that's not medication reconciliation. That's not MTM. That's not just making sure the patient gets the right prescription in the bottle and, and takes it home with them. It is making sure that the whole package is put together. The only way to do that is to have adequate disease state knowledge in terms of chronic kidney disease. So, so we'll talk about why that, that is an important thing. And so it's beneficial to have comprehensive medication management for patients with chronic kidney disease because medication therapy problems and poor medication adherence increase as CKD progression uh, progresses and medication uses, uh, use increases. So individuals with stage 3 and 4 CKD, you can see here the average number of 6 to 8 medications they're prescribed. Those with end-stage kidney disease are prescribed approximately 12 medications. Right? So as we have more therapies that become available, that's exciting, but we have to balance that also with their ability to take the medications and to understand what to do with those medications in terms of preventing adverse events and appropriately utilizing those. So medication management provided by pharmacists has been shown to reduce medication therapy problems and improve adherence. And there is growing evidence supporting pharmacist services in terms of CKD outcomes, looking at slowing GFR decline, reducing hospitalization and mortality, and so on. But there's more robust translational research that's really needed. There's individuals that are involved in this who may or may not be reporting on some of their outcomes. And I'll show you a couple of those outcomes in just a moment here. But we also know that medication therapy problems are associated with significant costs to the healthcare system. So there's certainly lots of reasons why comprehensive medication management can really uh, address some of these issues. And ideally, we can see that pharmacists would be able to enhance pharmacy pract uh, nephrology practices and help meet what we refer to now as the quadruple aim. It used to be the triple aim. Now it's the quadruple aim. Not only patient satisfaction and cost, but provider satisfaction and patient outcomes. And if you look over on the left, what this is referring to are some of the things that are specific to those uh, kidney care models, some of the outcome measures and metrics. And we're not going into detail with those, but some things that they're looking at are patient activations scores. There's a question on those patient activation surveys that ask patients if they understand their medications. Okay, and that's something that pharmacists can help with. There's also part of those care models that talk about providing kidney disease education, and pharmacists are, are permitted and, and equipped to be able to do this, as well as home visits after discharge. In addition to that, telehealth provisions are also included in there. So there's lots of different ways that pharmacists could be involved in, in this particular aspect. Now, what have we seen in terms of pharmacist-managed CKD clinics and information that we have here? If we look at the systematic review um, of studies, and there were eight controlled studies that they reported on, including just over 700 patients with CKD, we can see that pharmacist interventions were associated with a reduced composite in end-stage kidney disease and mortality in patients with diabetes, reduced all-cause hospitalizations, as well as improvement in anemia management looking at target hemoglobin. They also looked at improved health outcomes in terms of quality of life, certainly important from the patient's perspective, and found improved um, improvements in dimensions of general health as well as social functioning. If we look more specifically at a study that looked at um, anemia management in a, pharma in a pharmacist managed ESA clinic, we can see here in this VA system that the pharmacist ESA clinic compared to usual care or usual care within the ESA clinic that did not include a pharmacist, that of um, these 570 or so patients, pharmacist-based care was more likely to achieve the target hemoglobin level, which at that time was 10 to 12. That is no longer our target. That was higher than, than where we are today. But the point is pharmacists were able to help 
achieve that target hemoglobin, reduce ESA usage, and we're more likely to get iron studies and other labs that were important as far as monitoring those patients. So I'm kind of, kind of giving you a, a demonstration here of some information that's out there specific to CKD, and there are other studies that, that show the value of pharmacists. But what I'm building here is a story for you to help you realize that because these models of care are in place, because we have such an epidemic of CKD, because we're dealing with complications like anemia and many different aspects with these medications, there is opportunities for pharmacists. And so some of us that have been involved in the nephrology space for a while have started a group and an initiative called the Advancing Kidney Health Through Optimal Medication Management Initiative. It's a little bit of a mouthful. We call it ACOM for short. And you can see here the vision and mission statement. But ultimately, the idea is that every person with kidney disease will receive optimal medication management through team-based care, including a pharmacist, to ensure that they receive comprehensive medication management. So here's our mission in terms of gauging pharmacists and key stakeholders. Okay, so we're not just doing this in, in a silo or in isolation. And we ideally want to work with nephrology practices and health systems to help implement comprehensive medication management within their practices incorporating pharmacists. So how are we doing this? I'm not showing you this to, to really show the names, but more of the things that are over here on the left in terms of our initiatives. Now, Wendy St. Peter, if anyone is, is aware of, of Wendy, she is a, um, a clinical pharmacist and faculty member at uh, the University of Minnesota who has been involved in CKD care for quite some time and a, and a good colleague of mine. And she, a couple years ago, got together at one of the American Society of Nephrology meetings and talked to us all about this in terms of getting pharmacists involved because of, of the changes that were happening. So where are we now? We actually have practice standards, okay, in terms of what pharmacists should be doing who are in advanced CKD clinics. Okay, these are patients that are not yet on dialysis, but in CKD maybe three through five. Uh, we have education standards. What should pharmacists know? We also have a stakeholder engagement group. So Wendy and others have been involved with reaching out to these wraparound care companies, um, lots of different physician groups in terms of the nephrology world, et cetera. There's a lot of stakeholders that are involved and uh, buy into this concept of having pharmacists involved in this. And I'll flip down to the bottom here. We're in the process of developing our curriculum, which should be out in, in February. And this would be a free curriculum, not only to pharmacists for CE, but to nurses and physicians as well, to Im improve knowledge and keep them up to speed in terms of the newest information that's coming out. So we're going to have these online modules that are available and a learning and action collaborative for those who do go into these CKD clinics to be able to implement CMM, okay, with fidelity and all those things that come with that. So I'm introducing this concept to you to kind of let you know where we are and to realize that we, we have basically taken a problem where we know that the treatment is suboptimal. Okay, and you can see here on the left, as Dr. Kellaporis already highlighted for you, the issues with CKD care. We've addressed the fact that these value-based care models are looking for improvement in care, okay, not only through the, the goals of the American, Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative, but also by including comprehensive medication management. We've designed tools to help do that with a curriculum and training. And ideally, we want better outcomes, maximizing adherence and effectiveness of the CKD drugs that we have available to delay progression and manage secondary complications, such as these agents for anemia management, and allow more patients to be treated and, and also serve those that are disproportionately affected by CKD. And so that's going to be layered in our curriculum as well. 
The website for us is on the bottom here. I refer you guys, that's the kidneymedicationmanagement.org. If anyone's interested in more information on that, go ahead and look at that. My email's in there, as, as are Wendy's and other folks. So I encourage you, whether you envision yourself in a CKD clinic as, that, as those things may evolve uh, or not, if you're involved in the care of patients with CKD, I think these will be very helpful as we start putting together information for what we're talking about today as well, which is anemia and the evolution of some of these new drug classes that we have. So I'm going to leave you with, with that. I do have a slide that has our outcome metrics. All right. Well, with that, what we are going to do is transition now into some cases. So I'm going to turn this back over to Dr. Wish. I'd like to resume some case-based discussions. Here is a, Anya again, a 70-year-old woman with a history of cardiovascular disease, specifically stroke and a cardiac stent, along with her type 2 diabetes. She has end-stage kidney disease and was started on dialysis three times a week two years ago. IV iron is being held per facility protocol because she has a seroferritin greater than 800, and her ESA is at the highest allowed dose per the anemia treatment protocol, and it's being administered. Nonetheless, she still remains profoundly anemic with a hemoglobin of 8.5. Transcendent saturation is at the lower end of the target range at 22. And as we said, her ferritin is 850, which is above the level that this particular anemia management protocol allows for the administration of additional IV iron. Anya would be a classic example of a EPO, hypo-responsive patient in the dialysis setting where she has not yet achieved a target hemoglobin of 10 to 11 and yet is on the maximum dose of erythropoietin or an ESA analog and is ineligible for additional iron therapy. So we've kind of reached the end of the line with conventional management and therefore uh, when and if uh, HIF-PHI were to be available, she would seem to be a suitable candidate for that treatment. Okay, so Anya's uh, hemoglobin is now 5.4. Uh, basically, she's maxed out on the ESA, she's maxed out on the IV iron, she's down at 5.4, transfer and saturation still on the low end of the target range of 20 to 50, and her ferritin is higher than the upper limit that uh, the protocol in that particular dialysis facility allows. So the next question is, what would you do now? Then I think all of us who manage patients just like this would agree this is the point that no one would dispute that a blood transfusion is needed, even given the fact that it might increase her sensitization to HLA antigens and decrease the pool of potential transplant donors uh, down the road. Okay, here's another patient, Dondre. He has obesity, long-standing hypertension, a 10-year history of glomerulonephritis. He receives continuous ambulatory PD and he, his hemoglobin remains elevated. It's not elevated, it's depressed, it's decreased at 6.9, despite oral iron therapy and, again, maximal doses of erythropoietin based on the dialysis provider's protocol. And you can see here his hemoglobin is 6.9, his transferrin saturation is below that target range that we, I just mentioned of about 20 to 50, and his serum ferritin is even higher than Anya's at 900, which again, in many dialysis, uh, facilities exceeds the upper limit for additional IV iron. I should point out that all of the studies that were done in ESRD populations for Roxudostat, Vatidustat, 
and Daprotostat were worldwide studies. They were global studies. The uh, prevalence of home dialysis modalities is actually much higher in many other countries than it is in the United States. And most of these studies included somewhere around 15% perineal dialysis patients. So they weren't all hemodialysis patients. So we do have global experience with the use of these agents and their outcomes was no different or their response to the HIF-PHI that happened to be used in that study was no different than it is for hemodialysis patients. So for us that have, you know, read the studies and the results, we are pretty confident that it could be used in PD patients and this would be a good example of a patient whose hemoglobin is extremely low, maxed out on the iron therapy and has reached a maximum dose of ESA allowed by the provider. Now we have Crystal. She has stage four chronic kidney disease. She complains of increasing fatigue and dyspnea on exertion, but evaluation yields no evidence of uh, cardiopulmonary disease. She was prescribed an oral iron supplement, but reported GI distress and constipation after two weeks of use. An order for IV iron was placed, but her insurer would only approve ferrogluconate or sucrose, which require multiple visits to the infusion center. Ferrogluconate was ordered 25 milligrams times four doses because a repletion dose of IV iron is 1,000 milligrams. She missed the second two doses because she could not find transportation to the infusion center. Her T-set and seroferritin increased with the two doses of iron. ESA was ordered, but the insurer was, would only approve biosimilarly poetin alpha, which unlike Darby poetin alpha, which can be administered every three or four weeks, must be administered weekly. The patient did not want to sub-administer the sub-Q EPO, so an infusion center appointments were, were arranged, but the patient could only get to the center once or twice a month. This is a real patient, okay? And I see many of these patients in my practice, uh, unfortunately, quite often. So her serocreatinine was two, her EGFR 27, which is stage four, hemoglobin below the target at 9.1, TSAT increased from 11 to 21 with the two doses of IV iron, and her seroferritin, which was 21, increased to 120. At her follow-up visit in three months, her hemoglobin is still below the target of 9.4, and she continues to complain of the fatigue and dyspnea. So again, there's no question that goes with this particular case, uh, but this emphasizes some of the logistical challenges that many patients will have with the current standard of care, both IV iron and ESAs that has, have to uh, be administered in an infusion center. So just to uh, recapitulate our summary, anemia is a burdensome complication of CKD uh, and for the healthcare system, HIF-PHIs are an oral treatment for CKD-associated anemia and they are non-inferior ESAs for raising hemoglobin in every study. There's no question about their efficacy. Emerging evidence suggests that in dialysis-dependent CKD patients, some HIF-PHIs may be similar or actually safer, uh, not by a big margin, but a small margin, than ESAs in terms of cardiovascular outcomes, and clinical pharmacists play an increasingly important role in managing patients with CKD and CKD-associated anemia. So let's wrap things up with a Q&A session, and we have some questions that have come in. Okay, why don't we give this to Ellie? Can HIF-PHI inhibitors and ESA be administered together? Um, I really don't think so. I mean, I think that um, the, you know, um, I think that it's juiced. I guess what you're asking is if it's two different medications or agents to increase the erythropoiesis and they function through different mechanisms, 
you know, is that po- a possibility? And I, I don't think that I don't see that happening. I think it's going to be a one or the other uh, choice. And if if HIF PHIs are as safe as erythropoietin, it's really going to come down to availability and costs. I think. And that study has not been done, right? So we don't even have any information done. on how that would work. Okay, there's a number of other questions related to the HIF stabilizers. Uh, do patients using HIF stabilizers develop hyperkalemia? If so, is it because of the medication or because patients with severe CKD are more prone to hyperkalemia? Uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, the hyperkalemia safety signal emerged only in the Chinese studies, phase three studies of roxudostat. It has not been seen with any of the other agents and has actually not been seen with any of the global studies of roxudostat. So that seems to be somewhat of an outlier and the concern regarding hyperkalemia with the class in general seems to be pretty minimal at this point. We'll give that one to Joanna. Could you see HIF agents completely replacing ESAs in the treatment uh, paradigm? So interesting question there. Um, I think that given some of the safety concerns of ESAs, there's always been a push to say, can we lower use of ESAs? Because there's always been a question, is it the ESA itself? Is it the rate of rise of hemoglobin? What is the, the actual cause of um, any of the cardiovascular signals that, that we have with, with ESAs and concerns? I think that we would, you know, if these agents get approved here in the U.S. and as we get more pragmatic data from other countries that are using these agents, we will probably have more safety information about HIFs. I think if the, if the safety were to be, um, to pan out to be better, then potentially they, they could replace ESAs. But right now, I don't think there's enough information to be able to say whether that would happen. I don't know if you have any other comments on that as well, but. No, I, I'm inclined concerned. to agree. Uh, a number of the other questions are about the use of these agents spe- in special populations, which, of course, you know, when you do a phase three clinical trial, there are exclusions, and a lot of these questions uh, regard those excluded populations. Uh, are there data pertaining to the excessive HIF uh, PHIs in red cell aplasia? I'm not aware of any studies uh, that have been done in that population. Can p- HIF stabilizers be used in patients with cancer? Uh, as far as I can recall, almost every one of the studies of these agents excluded patients with active cancer. So the answer is because, as I mentioned in my presentation, the cellular and tissue response to hypoxia involves not only erythropoiesis and increased red cell delivery of oxygen, but also angiogenesis. And angiogenesis is probably not something you would want in patients with an active tumor where you would provide more blood flow to the malignancy. Uh, I think cancer has been an exclusion and probably will be an exclusion uh, when and if these drugs are approved in the United States. Ellie? Although I, I would add, I agree entirely with what you said. I would add, though, that what uh, Joanna talked about was the mechanism of rise of hemoglobin I think is important in cancer patients. Our oncology colleagues used very, very high doses, rapidly increased hemoglobin, and that resulted in death. So, uh, you know, I, I understand the exclusion of cancer, but I think we do have to be cognizant that the way you raise the hemoglobin and its doses, the dose dependence that they used, may have, in fact, resulted in these unfavorable outcomes. And, and so we shouldn't really generalize to the HIFs. I think that's reasonable. How effective are pH inhibitors in patients with CKD and non-renal solid organ transplants? Again, I think that's a population that's been excluded from most of the clinical trials. I think theoretically, uh, there may be some immunomodulatory effects of of HIF and HIF-PHIs, but their ultimate 
impact on a non-renal solid organ transplant has not been demonstrated. So I would certainly be inclined to use these agents with caution, but not necessarily contraindicated in, in those populations. There's another question about using pediatric populations. As far as I know, almost all of the studies, in fact, all of the studies that were phase three excluded patients under 18 years old. So we don't really have any data for pediatric populations. That's how usually clinical trials go, right? They're, they're done in adults, and then there's, they sort of go into the pediatric population when the safety signal has been defined. Correct. Uh, Ellie, you may want to talk about the lipid-lowering effect, which is this question. Basically, what's the lipid lowering effect with HIFs? Yeah, and the lipid lowering effect is something that really is uh, is very interesting. I mean, I think that um, I'm not sure what the mechanism truly is. I don't know if you if you do, but I do. It's been really a substantial lowering of the the lipid, and it also there was some uh, some issues also of weight loss. Um, that you know, some, some clinical uh, cases of weight loss. So I think like all medications that act in a pathway that hasn't really been defined as only an anemia pathway, I think that that, that may be um, what you're seeing here. Yes, there, there are multiple metabolic effects of HIF-PHIs that have not really been well studied. The lipid-lowering effect is one that was demonstrated particularly with ruxudostat, and this does seem to be agent-specific. The cholesterol-lowering effect with ruxudostat is more dramatic than it is with vadudostat, which was minimal, and daprotostat was somewhat in the middle. But I should also point out that the cholesterol-lowering effect affected both HDL and LDL. So the long-term consequences in terms of cardiovascular risk really remain to be seen in terms of what that does. And, and the important thing to remember that Jay talked about is that this is a class of new agents, but it's not a class effect. So they are different. And so I think that uh, perhaps that's what's going to distinguish what you're going to use, which agent you're going to use for which patient. Okay, and then the last question is, what is the optimal hemoglobin level for patients on dialysis? Uh, optimal is uh, uh, basically Moving a very patient-specific uh, answer. In terms of you know, a one-size-fits-all approach, which most of the anemia protocols in the large dialysis chains use, the target is generally between 10 and 11. However, the KDGO guidelines do acknowledge that some patients will feel better with hemoglobins as high as 11.5 or even 12. So what they re recommend is that if a patient does in fact request a higher hemoglobin target, the discussion be conducted with the patient to explain that there may be an increased risk with regards to thrombotic events and if the patient is willing to accept that risk as a trade-off for improved quality of life, that's certainly that would be legitimate. And it's definitely lower than the slide I showed you where the data was looking at target hemoglobins of 10 to 12, which was, was K-Doki related before. I'd like to thank you all for your attention and hope you have a very pleasant rest of your day. This activity is certified by Purdue University College of Pharmacy. This accredited activity has been developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HFV 860. This educational activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline.